All right, you all ready? Daniel 11, starting in verse 2, going through verse 45. Buckle in. Here we go. So now this angel who had spoken to Daniel in chapter 10 continues in verse 2 and says, And now I will tell you, Daniel, the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be uprooted, even for others besides these. Also, the king of the south shall become strong, as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. And at the end of some years they shall join forces, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand. But she shall be given up with those who brought her, and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times." But from a branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place who shall come with an army, enter the fortress of the king of the north, and deal with them and prevail. And he shall also carry the gods, their gods captive to Egypt with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold. And he shall continue more years than the king of the north. Also, the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. However, his sons shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. And the king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him, and the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude. But the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. When he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail." For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. Now in those times, many shall rise up against the king of the south. Also, violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fail. So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take a fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. He shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do, and he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or be for him. After this, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many. But a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end. And with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on them. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. But within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle." And in his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty. But he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue 
With the force of a flood they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. And after the, stru- after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a, number, with a small number of people. Verse 24. He shall enter peaceably even into the richest places of the province, and he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches, and he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army, and the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table. But it shall not prosper, for the end will still be at the appointed time. While returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. At the appointed time, he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter. For ships from Cyprus shall come against him. Therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against the holy covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. And forces shall be mustered by him and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Those who do wickedly against the covenant he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many. Yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help. But many shall join with them by intrigue. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still appointed It is still for the appointed time. Verse 36. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the god of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any god, for he shall exalt himself above them all. But in their place he shall honor a God of fortresses, and a God for which his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign God, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind. With chariots, horsemen, and with many ships, he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. But news from the east and from the north shall trouble him, 
Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. All right, clear, right? I mean, we could just stop now. <laughs> no, people are like, no, please explain this to us. Well, I believe we live in a society that is increasingly disinterested in history. Perhaps now every generation has voiced similar concerns about the newer generation, how the newer generation doesn't know the things of the past. But it seems even now as if we are reliving events from 40 or even 50 years ago. And the younger generation in general is completely unaware of it. We see rising inflation. We see ineffective leadership in Washington. We see rising threats from communist regimes. It feels a little bit like we're doing the 70s and the 80s all over again. Though if you do not have a belief in God or His sovereignty, then history really is just sort of the random occurrence of events, right? It's just how things fold out. It's just the falling out of events in this world. There's no order to them. There's no purpose behind them. There's no purpose to anything. But, my favorite word, but if you do believe in God, and if you do believe in His sovereignty, then history becomes His story. But though most, if not all, Christians pay lip service to the idea of God's sovereignty because we're finite creatures limited to this specific place and time, it can be almost impossible to see God's purpose in history. It is hard to see God's hand of providence in the here and now. Now, sometimes it's a little easier to look at it in retrospect, to look back on things and say, oh yeah, I see what God was doing there. Or I see what God purposed in that. But as it's happening now, it's really hard to see in, in the here and now, that God is working, that God is orchestrating the events of history. And as we come to this text this morning in Daniel 11, this kind of confusing text, or this text where it seems like a lot of back and forth going on, uh, I really struggled how to put this together in a sermon that would be beneficial and edifying for you all. Because on one hand, I could go through exquisite detail and explain all the instances of what the king of the south is, who the king of the north is, what these events are going on in history. Because this prophecy contains some very detailed descriptions of world history from the time of Daniel until really not only the end of the second century B.C., but even beyond to the end of history itself. However, I think the last thing we need here is a sermon that sounds like a documentary from the History Channel. You know, I could go on and drone with a sort of documentary person's voice, you know, the kind of, and now the king of the south advanced on the, you know, you know and, and it would just put you all to sleep. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do something a little different this morning. Because since Daniel's vision here entails events in the future from his perspective, the first thing I want to do is just say a few words on the message of prophecy in general, what prophecy is all about in general. And then we'll look at Daniel's prophetic vision here in Daniel 11 a little more closely. I'm not going to look 
through every detail. I'm not going to give you the blow-by-blow of what's going on, but we'll try to then to understand the message of Daniel 11. And then we will end by looking at how Daniel 11, from our perspective, which is past, most of it at least, and we'll try to see what we can learn from it, what our takeaway is from Daniel 11. But if I had to sum up the message of Daniel 11 in one sentence, it would be this. In a world racked by wars and rumors of war, let us stand firm because God is sovereign over history. In a world racked by wars and rumors of war, let us, that is the people of God, stand firm because God is sovereign over history. So first let us look at the, just the general biblical message of prophecy. Because when your average person hears the word prophecy, he or she automatically thinks of someone predicting future events, right? A prophet is someone who can look into the future and tell you what's going to happen, right? But that's only part of what prophecy means in the Bible. Because the, to prophesy, the verb to prophesy, basically is just to speak Fourth, as under the influence of a divine being or divine spirit. So that is what to prophesy is in the Bible. The Hebrew word means to speak forth, forth as though under the influence of a divine being or spirit. So then a prophet is one who prophesies, and a prophet then is one who speaks forth for divine being or deity. And then a prophecy is that which is spoken forth. So a prophet prophesies a prophecy. Okay? A prophet speaks forth for a deity. In doing so, he gives a message from that deity to the people. And most of the prophecies in the Old Testament are not necessarily predictions of future events, but really just God speaking forth through His spokesman to His people. So again, thus the prophets were people specifically called by God for this task to speak forth God's words to His people. The Bible early on in the Old Testament describes examples of prophets such as people like Abraham. Abraham was described as a prophet. Moses, probably the epitome of an Old Testament prophet, one who not only spoke face-to-face to God, but was sort of God's mediator. He spoke directly to the people from God. A man like Samuel was also a prophet. Then you have other men in the Bible who would speak forth to King David. People like the prophet Gad or the prophet Nathan who spoke forth to to King David to get him back on the right track or to give him advice on how to handle the situation with King Saul. Now the first time in the Bible that we see a prophet sort of like in the traditional sense of a prophet that we understand would be Elijah. The coming of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17 where Elijah kind of comes forth out of nowhere, right? He just in the in the narrative, it just he kind of pops up out of nowhere and begins prophesying to the people of Israel. Now Elijah becomes the first in a long line of prophets that we see we say are in the vein of covenant prosecutors. Okay, so think law and order, right? The prosecutor comes and he you know brings the law to bear on the defendants. Now, Israel, of course, would have been in covenant with God. They were in covenant with God all the way back in the days of Moses. And Moses told them that if you obey the covenant, you will receive my blessings. 
If you disobey the covenant, you will receive the covenant curses. And then the prophets were then sent after many, many years of God bearing, being long-suffering with His people. The prophets were sent to bring the people back to covenant faithfulness, back to covenant fidelity. So they would be prosecutors of the covenant saying, you have sinned. You need to turn back. So their basic message would have been, repent, or else God will bring the covenant curses to bear upon you. Then later on, around the 8th century B.C., you actually see what we call the writing prophets. People like Isaiah, or Jeremiah, or Hosea. These, these prophets performed a multitude of functions depending on the relation to the exile. So if you're before Israel was exiled, these prophets would come and warn of the coming exile. If you don't obey, you will go into exile. If it was during the exile, then the prophets would promise the restoration of God's kingdom and the, and the fortunes of God's people. They would also pronounce oracles against God's enemies, promising God's revenge upon their enemies for the evil that they committed on their people, His people. But then fourthly, these prophets would also prophesy about the coming of Messiah and the consummation of the kingdom. So there was an aspect of that that looked forward beyond the time of the exile. And in some of these functions, you will see predictions of future events. Now the message of Daniel is a little different because he's not a prophet in the traditional sense as speaking forth to God's people, bringing them back to covenant fidelity. That's why Daniel has this sort of uh, flavor of apocalypse to it. In fact, Daniel is considered the little apocalypse, the little revelation. It's a lot like the book of Revelation. So Daniel's message is a little different. And we have already noted how some of the predictions that we see here in Daniel, particularly in these later chapters, were so detailed that skeptics who came to this book of Daniel would look at it and say, Daniel's not writing prophecy. Daniel's writing history after the fact. Because these prophecies are so detailed, there's no way this could have been predicted ahead of time. Daniel must have been some guy later on in time who was just writing this as prophecy, but writing from the perspective of history. But again, Daniel, like the book of Revelation, is written to a people who are in exile, to a people who are living in a hostile world, to a people who are enduring, uh, who are, have a faith that is enduring through adversity. And he writes to give hope to them, to give hope, encouragement to a people living in exile. And we get this hope because as God says in Isaiah 44, you can jot this reference down, Isaiah 44, verses 6 and 7, God says to Isaiah, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and things that shall come. Now in that prophecy, Isaiah is speaking toward the, the pagans who have these false gods who cannot do anything. They're dumb. They cannot speak. They cannot see. They cannot hear. And God is saying, I am a God and there is no other. I'm the one who knows the beginning. I know the ending. I am the first and the last and I appoint all of these things. He knows all things. He declares all things and sets them in order. 
So God reveals these things to Daniel and then to us so that we know uh, that history isn't just the random falling out of events in the world, but that history has a purpose. History has a goal. And we need to trust God because God is the one who orders and decrees these events to fall out as they do. So that is the message of prophecy. Let us now try to explain the message of Daniel 11. Again, as we come to this passage, it's a little necessary to review a bit of the context of this detailed vision. As we noted last week, Daniel chapters 10 through 12 is one unit. It is one vision. And it is the final vision of this book. And it occurs, as we saw last week, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. We saw that in Daniel 10, verse 1. And this period of time was a time of great discouragement for God's people. Because the rebuilding effort in Jerusalem had stalled. Because in the first year of Cyrus, Cyrus allowed the Jews to go back home to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city, to rebuild the wall. And then two years later, that rebuilding project had stalled because of opposition from the enemies of the people of God. So it is a time of great discouragement because God had promised them through the prophet Jeremiah, I know the plans I have for you. Plans for good and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. And here they are. It's like, where are these plans for good? We're trying to rebuild your house, O God, and why are we not able to do this? So you've got this sort of gap, if you will, between promise and reality. Because it sure doesn't seem to be coming to pass that God has good plans for His people. But again, the basic message of chapter 11 is that God is in sovereign control over history. He is in sovereign control over history. And we need to bridge then this gap between the promises of God and the reality that we see here on the ground, right? Because God, we know God loves us. He tells us He loves us. But sometimes it's hard to believe that He loves us when we see our lives falling apart. We know God forgives us our sins. We know God promises to forgive us our sins. But sometimes it's hard to feel forgiven when you continue to slip up and continue to fail in your sanctification. So what bridges that gap between promise and reality? Well, it's faith. Faith bridges the gap between promise and reality. Faith in our covenant-keeping God who loves us with an unbreakable love in Christ. Now again, back to Daniel 11. As I said at the outset, my goal here is not to give you the, the details of this passage, a blow-by-blow blow of the passage. Rather, I want to focus on how God, through this angel speaking to Daniel, gives a precise and detailed yet selective, selective because it's only focusing on God's people here, Glimpse of Middle East historical development. Now, the first part of this revelation takes place in Daniel 11, verses 2 through 4. And these verses kind of say in different words what we saw in Daniel chapter 8 with that vision of the ram and the goat. If you remember from Daniel chapter 8, the vision of the ram and the goat, Daniel gets this vision of a ram that comes through, a ram with two horns. One horn bigger than the other, and a ram comes through and sort of 
ravages the whole land, and then all of a sudden out of the out of the west comes this goat with this giant horn that just crushes the ram, and then the, the horn gets destroyed, and then four horns come up in its place, and so on and so forth. And we're told that that's a vision of Persia and Greece. He says the ram is Persia, the goat is Greece. And then out of that comes a little horn. We'll, go, we'll get into that in a little bit. But here in verses 2 through 4, it's kind of just telling that same vision with different words. Because Daniel's told that there will be three more kings in Persia after Cyrus. And then, after, then a fourth one will rise up. And this fourth king is King Xerxes I, which if you know the book of Esther, is called by the name King Ahasuerus. So this Xerxes, this wealthy king, this powerful king, was the one that was married to Queen Esther. He will rise up. Xerxes was far richer than all, and he will attempt to invade Greece, and he will provoke the Greek Empire, which he did but was eventually defeated in a battle in the year 480 B.C. Then this in turn leads a mighty king. This is Alexander the Great, who conquers all the known world, including Persia, by the year 330 B.C. But then after his death in 323, his kingdom, as you see here in verse 4, shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven. Again, this is just a recap of Daniel 8, that Persia advances and then Greece advances as well. Now the next part of the vision here, the next part of the revelation, recounts the history of two of these four kingdoms. Again, remember, Alexander's empire was divided in four. We're going to look in detail at two of these four kingdoms. One of them is referred to as the king of the north, and one of them is referred to the king of the south. And this occurs in verses 5 through 20. Now these two kingdoms in view here are the Seleucid kingdom, that's the king of the north, which would be in the area of Syria and Babylon. And then the king of the south would be the Ptolemaic kingdom in Egypt. So you have Syria and Egypt, king of the north, king of the south. And these verses, 5 through 20, cover a period of 150 years, roughly, from 322 to 175 B.C., as these two kingdoms go back and forth and, and war and vie for regional power. That's what those verses are talking. King of the south, king of the north, so on and so forth. Now, during that 150-year period, guess who's caught in the middle? Right? Who, when you go from the north to the south, you have to go through where? You have to go through Israel. When you go from the south to the north, you have to go through where? You have to go through Israel. So God's people are caught in the middle of this back and forth between king of the north, king of the south. In fact, you see here in verse 14 that even some among your people, that's what the angel says, the Jewish people would involve themselves in this conflict. In other words, you, and it says they fail. It says, in other words, you cannot hasten the coming of the kingdom through force of arms. Again, imagine the plight of God's people here. They thought that the end of the 70 years of captivity would spell a return to the golden age, would spell a return to the, the glories of the, the, the Jewish kingdom. But all it brought was unending conflict with Jerusalem caught in the middle of all of it. And then when you thought things couldn't get worse, we see in verses 21 through 35 the rise of a vile person. And this vile person is believed to be Antiochus IV. Again, someone we saw in Daniel chapter 8. He was the little horn in Daniel 8. 
And Antiochus reigns from the years 175 B.C. to 164 B.C. And we learn here that Antiochus seizes the kingdom by force and all who imposed him were swept away. And we saw even including the prince of the covenant is believed to be the high priest Onias who is deposed by Antiochus. And then Antiochus sort of renews the ancient antagonism between Syria and Egypt by invading Egypt. And upon his return, there's a revolt in the land. So Antiochus is moved against the Holy Covenant. And then later on, Antiochus attempts another invasion in Egypt, but he was repelled. And then as petty tyrants like to do when they are, when they are uh, kept from doing what they want to do, he takes his anger out on his own people. We see that in verses 30 and 31. And we saw this before, right? The abomination of desolation. We saw it in chapter 8. We saw it in chapter 9. The abomination of desolation is where Antiochus ceases all religious worship in the temple and then he defiles the temple by setting up an altar and sacrificing a pig on it to the god Zeus. Then verses 33 through 35 seem to be speaking of the great persecution of God's people. And then what comes to be called the Maccabean Revolt as the Jewish people under Judas Maccabeus rise up and revolt against Antiochus and eventually win their, um, their liberation for a period of time. So now that brings us to the last section of, 11, of chapter 11 here, verses 36 through 45. And this section has sort of baffled many scholars because it both at the same time seems to be continuing a discussion of Antiochus IV, but then there are aspects of it that don't quite parallel with the story of Antiochus. In fact, uh, Ian Duguid, commenting on this passage, says, Yet at the same time, even while aspects of the language of Daniel 11.36-39 seem to fit Antiochus, the passage as a whole seems to be speaking of a king who will be a larger and more ultimate version of Antiochus. So many scholars believe that this is a final or ultimate antichrist figure to be revealed at the end of the age, which is why Jesus in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew 25, verse 14 says, when you see the abomination of desolation, then flee. Flee to the mountains, flee to the hills, flee Jerusalem. So in other words, when you see another Antiochus-like figure approach. That is the time of the end. Paul talks about this guy in his uh, second letter to Thessalonians when he calls this man the son of perdition or the man of lawlessness. This, this sort of end times antichrist figure. And if this is the case, and I'm inclined to believe this, then what Daniel sees here is the working out of all of redemptive history from his time all the way to the end of time. And during that period of time, from the time when Daniel's receiving this vision all the way to the end of time, God's people will be caught in the seemingly endless struggle between world powers striving to remain faithful in difficult times, having their faith tested. Now, what does this all mean for us? What is the message for us? Because going back to something we said at the beginning are we living through history or are we living through his story? Do we see history as either uh, an interesting subject in school or something through which to sleep? Or do we see history 
as the unfolding of God's redemptive plans. Again, the world puts little or no stock in history. At best, it's something through which we can learn a few lessons. Uh, you know, you hear the phrase, those who are doomed to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. At worst, history is just something that happens in the past. There's no rhyme or reason to it. There's certainly no purpose behind it. But again, remember what we saw at the beginning, Isaiah 44, verses 6 and 7. God is the first. God is the last. He was at the beginning. He is now, and He will be at the end. God is sovereign over history. He declares or appoints the things that are coming and the things that shall come. All things are declared, decreed, and ordained by Him. And that means He not only knows all things because He's omniscient, but He also appointed these things that shall take place. So it's not like God just knows the future and tells the future to Daniel. He is the one orchestrating the future and is telling Daniel, this is what's going to take place because this is what I decreed will take place. Now let me ask you a question. What is more comforting? That history just unfolds according to no plan or purpose? That we are just sort of as the song from Kansas will say, we're just dust in the wind, kind of blowing around with no plan or purpose. Or that history unfolds according to God's ordained purposes and plans. I think clearly that is more comforting. It's more comforting to know that when bad things happen to me, at least God's hand is on the tiller. Right? These bad things will not be forever and they will work for His glory and my good. The other plan is just like bad things happen. It's like, oh well, I guess it's bad things happen. That's what happens in the world. Sucks to be you, I guess, would be the, the, the way the world would talk about it. God revealed these things to Daniel in a sense to say, Daniel, you are a man dearly loved. And though things will be bad for some time, they are under my control. And they will result in my glory and your good. You need to trust me, Daniel. You need to trust me. And trusting God requires faith. Because we can't see the end from the beginning. So it's hard for us to have 100% faith. But God can see the end from the beginning. And He has ordained the end from the beginning. And the more we exercise this faith, the easier it is to trust God. The more we trust God, the easier it is to cope with and to deal with the ups and downs of this world. So we need to heed the lessons of Daniel 11, verse 32. We need to know our God. We need to trust God through saving faith. We need to stand firm to, not, to resist fear and temptation, to resist sin and the devil. And we need to take action we need to be bold. We need to pray. We need to spread the good news. God's people are called to be like Daniel. They are called to have an enduring faith through times of adversity. But of course, since history is His story, the centerpiece of His story is the coming of Messiah. We saw that in chapter 9. That prophecy of the 70 weeks it focused on the coming of Messiah, His person and His work. 
Now, Daniel's contemporaries were looking forward to that momentous event. When Daniel got that vision, that was something that was in his future, looking forward to the coming of Messiah. But here we are, on the other side of the cross, looking back to what Christ has done. So ours should be a greater hope than that of Daniel's because we know what Christ has done. He has already won the victory over sin and death and the devil. Because worse than world governments persecuting the church, the enemy of sin and death is our greatest enemy. And it was defeated on the cross by Jesus Christ. Far worse than the beasts of this world. And now we look forward to kingdom come. We look forward to the time when Christ returns to vanquish His and our enemies and to set up His eternal kingdom. That kingdom that was predicted in Daniel 7. That that kingdom, the kingdom of the Son of Man, which will destroy all of the kingdoms of the world. Now, in order to be part of Christ's eternal kingdom, you need to acknowledge and submit to the King. You need to acknowledge and submit to the King by repenting of your sins and turning to Christ by faith. Because doing so enables you and us to stand firm in this hostile world knowing that God is sovereign over history.